when quests are in the cards. When I met Ispin reading these lines. When it's just a regular knoll. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Lennon, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ostron. And I'm Ryu. And this is the 229th entry into our Chronicle, recorded on Saturday, November 12th, 2022, and released Wednesday, November 16th, 2022, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Ryu, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? This week, we're going to wander into the Market of Monoros to see what mysterious and magical items have filtered up for sale. And after that, we're going to check out some D&D news as we discuss the new art released for Takesis, as well as looking at the prelude to Adventure for Dragonlance Shadows of the Dragon Queen. And then we'll open up our quest logs as Indigo Spectre takes us through the Tomb of Annihilation. After that, we'll take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep to learn all about Knowles and Yunogu before finally heading into the Scrying Pool to see what you have to say. And that takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a walk over to the Market of Monaris. At What if I were to offer you six magic beads? I'm afraid currency is the currency of the realm. Welcome, one and all, to the Marvelous Market of Minoros, a roundup of our favorite D&D projects live on Kickstarter, as selected by the master of the marketplace, Bloodlake. A perfect way to lighten the burden of all the gold pieces that are burning a hole in your pocket after your latest adventures. Today, as everyone knows, part of my inherent personality is just a deep love for holidays and feasts and parties and general celebrations, so... I am going to talk about an item called Angel's Bacchanalia, a holiday feasts and celebrations resource for D&D. The Kickstarter is put out by Russell Morrissey, also known as EN Publishing. This is their 35th Kickstarter. Uh, previously, they have had 33 successful Kickstarters. They have had one failure. It was their very first one, and obviously they figured out what they needed to do going forward. They started the Kickstarter in Britain, so all of the prices are in British pounds, at least their initial listings are. So they initially wanted 500 British pounds. They are currently sitting at just under 4,800 British pounds, so I think they're doing okay. Uh, with 16 days to go, there is still plenty of time to jump onto this Kickstarter if you're interested. So what is it they're doing? Well. EN Publishing has 35 Kickstarters because they do what they cleverly call quick starters, which almost made me just reject their entry out of hand, but I pushed past it. Essentially, they release small resource guides and adventures that are very specifically focused on one thing. Uh, this particular one, as I said, is focused on holiday feasts and celebrations. So uh, the resource includes three major things. There is a quick adventure, which is focused on an angel that holds a celebration where all sins are forgiven 
And as they write in the description, no depravity goes unindulged. So essentially just a free for all. Uh, that's the adventure module. The hook for the adventure, at least according to the description on the Kickstarter, is that there is a woman in a town near to one of these celebrations. Her daughter went to one of them, never returned, and she wants the adventurers to look into that. In addition to the adventure, it also includes a few miniature reference guides. The first one is Enchanted Gourmet Meals, which are in-universe. These are not real recipes you can bake for the people coming to your games. But they involve using meat or items from in-game monsters, and using those you can craft essentially magic uh, meals to be consumed. A lot of people who have played modern RPG games on PC or console will be familiar with this concept because enchanted food has become something of a staple of the genre of late. On the other hand, they do have recipes for fantasy-themed drinks, which you can make in real life, and they have both alcohol-free and alcoholic versions. In addition to the food, they have a bunch of spells that are related to cooking or creating food. And then finally, they have a guide for how to create holidays and traditions based on chronological landmarks like New Year's or birthdays. Plus, they have rules that make aging and the passage of time in the characters' lives a little more interesting than just sort of marking dates off on a calendar. So I like this, first of all, because I'm always fascinated by extra mechanics that play to downtime activities like cooking or aging or holding events or celebrations that aren't necessarily combat or encounters where there's a direct challenge that needs to be overcome. Uh, also, the adventure itself to me sounded a little interesting. It's described as, like I said, a celebration of depravity where anything goes. But I feel like without being able to look at the resource itself, you can take that in a couple of different ways and you can tailor it to a bunch of different audiences because, you know, if you tell a bunch of children that there's a huge party going on where anything goes and they're not going to be punished, their interpretation of what that party looks like is going to be very different from if you walk up to a group of, say, college students and tell them the same thing. So I feel like the adventure at least has the potential to be widely applicable regardless of what the tastes of your group are. If you want to get your hands on this, uh, again, the prices are in British pounds, but uh, a PDF copy can be had for a seven pound pledge, which works out to about nine US dollars, at least unless and until the British economy collapses again. If you want a physical soft cover copy of this, that will run you 20 pounds or about 24 US dollars. The soft covers are expected to be delivered in December of 2022, which sounds really quick, but 
the resource itself isn't that large. It's only about 20 to 30 pages, and they're only doing soft covers, not hardcover resources. Uh, then if you want to go all out, as mentioned, this publisher has done multiple previous Kickstarters very much like this. They have a library of 20 PDFs that cover similar things to this, like archetypes, enchanted trinkets, pets, uh, Feywild, presents for goblins, sickness and health, things like that. You can get all 20 PDFs by pledging £100 or about $120, or you can get them all in softcover for £260 or just over $300 US dollars. So what do you two think? Well, first of all, I'm very proud of you for making a pun that you probably didn't intend, but it was there. Also, I'm slightly disappointed that you failed to mention that the list of spells is called the Gastronomicon. Well, I was trying to avoid puns, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, I like how this started out with uh, quick starters and just worked his way through it. It was beautiful. I am I, I am slightly upset as well, and this is nothing to do with the actual resource. When I first saw the title of this, I thought it was going to be sort of like a, um, you know, the D&D cookbook that they put out? I thought it was mm -hmm. going to be something similar, and I got kind of hungry, and then I read the adventure, and now I'm like, okay, that's actually a really cool idea, but I'm also very sad I can't give this to one of my players because I know he would have gone nuts and actually cooked everything in it, so... I am slightly disappointed that it's not an adventure book with recipes that go right. beyond the drink recipes that oh, Ostron already mentioned. Oh, we got a Kickstarter idea of our own coming on here. <laughs> that said, though, um, EN Publishing do make some fantastic 5th edition supplements, and their quality is always really good, so I can't see this one being a disappointment. And if this is the sort of thing that you want to run with your group, if you need a food themed <laughs> adventure this is probably one of the better ones to get for certain and next up we have Itza's Guide to Dragon Bonding by Draco Studios this is their ninth Kickstarter they've had one that's been cancelled and this Kickstarter is sitting at 141,000 of its original $20,000 goal and it goes through December 1st so this is a new addition to Draco Studios' Dragon Bond product, of which I already own several pieces of. There are six new dragon types, which they have dubbed broods, which they've based off of the final bosses in the mini-adventures that were in their Worms of Draca book. They've got three new dragon-centric classes, those being the Dragon Hunter, the Dragon Herald, and the Vala Adept, and those come with eight new subclasses. In case you thought we really needed more, they've included 14 new races. There are 50 new monsters, 50 new spells, and two new magic systems, which are Draconic Runes and the Vala, which they've described it kind of like the Force, in as much as what the Force actually is, not necessarily how it's used. I am very interested to see how these two systems will compare to the current Vancian system. But the real meat and potatoes, so to speak, of this book are the rules for dragonback aerial combat and the rules for bonding with and adventuring with dragons in your party. Now, 
Forget about breaking the game, guys. Uh, I don't know how they're going to pull that off without flat out shattering it. Now, I do think this book sounds really cool, even with the ability to probably shatter your game. So I'm probably going to get it, but they have seven tiers that you can pledge for. The first one is $1 for access to all the add-ons. And I thought that that was really interesting. I don't really see that type of pledge tier a lot on Kickstarters, and I would I would like to see that more often, personally. And then the other six tiers go from $25 for just the PDF of the book up to $240 for the PDF, the deluxe hardcover, Itza's field notes, 20 pre-made character sheets, reference cards for monsters and spells, an art book, the brood colored dice, so each brood has its own d20 to go with it, Fulgen dice set, the Fulgen are one of the broods, a GM screen, 12 posters, and all applicable stretch goals. An estimated delivery of this is for February 2024. I'm all about bonding with dragons. I was going to say, congratulations on making it through <laughs> that without squeeing at all, it was, actually. It was hard. It was hard. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I feel your pain here. I really do. Um, this is some, um, some really gorgeous artwork in this. I'm just flicking through the sample right now, and uh, uh, the artwork, in my opinion, easily rivals that of Wizards. Yeah, that's this is usually Ryu's song to sing, but I mm. I was very taken by the art. Even like the the sample cover caught my eye. I do have a few quibbles. First of all, one of the dragon broods is called a Quaddle, which I believe is already taken, and also what they have there doesn't look very much like a dragon to me. But the other thing is I hope this is one D&D compatible because they're definitely <laughs> going to be well into it by the time this drops. Well, it should be backwards compatible with 5th edition, so one would hope mm. so. And yeah. yeah, to Ryu's point, I have no idea how you run a campaign where dragons can just show up to help the PCs. Unless they're like Final Fantasy summons where... <laughs> mm, you can only pull them out like once a day and then basically that battle doesn't happen because everything on the board gets insta-wiped and then you just move on or what? If it is going to be in like the Final Fantasy summon, I hope it's in like the style of the older games where the DM just describes the scene for 15 minutes while the players just sit back and oh, no, you know, put the controller I, down on the desk. And I, I'd do it. Yeah, there would yeah. be a whole pre-recorded <laughs> time. And as if anyone got up from the table, you start again at the beginning. Mm -hmm. So when they actually describe what it would be like to adventure with a quote, true dragon, unquote, in your party... They start off with s somewhat mundane things like being able to walk through fire or using the magic of the Draconic runes. And then they're like, decimate droves of enemies with your dragon's deadly weapon. And I'm like, the game's over. Like, why are we even playing? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Although, good answer to Wizard's first level deadliness mm. is <laughs> give him a dragon. Also, another way you could incorporate it, Fever Dream on Eberron. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it'll work, it'll work. This is sort of an aside, but I'm, I'm somewhat tempted to pledge just for the brood dice, because those look nice. 
So you can pledge for the add-on tier, and then you can just buy the dice all on their own. Well, yeah, um, which is why I said I was somewhat tempted, but 2024 gives me a little bit of pause. It's not like you're never not going to need dice, Ostron. Sorry, I'm still trying to parse through all the negatives in that sentence. <laughs> I'm a fairly negative person, as we know. Um, well, finally, in our Kickstarter roundup, uh, Quest Dex, uh, or specifically Quest Dex 2.0, is a, as the name implies, a deck of quests that are coming to us from Dice Dungeons. This is their 10th Kickstarter. Uh, they've had nine other successes, so there's no reason to believe that this one should be any different. They were asking for a goal of 3000 US dollars, and at the time of recording, they've hit uh, 44,000 US dollars. So definitely definitely funded this one and also at the time of this recording you also have 28 days left to pledge so plenty of time if you want to get in on this one uh so quest decks what are they like i said as the name implies they are literally a deck of cards that have quests on them these are designed as a gm aid that if you're feeling a little bit stuck you can pull one out for inspiration or you can use them to populate a notice board of quests for your town. This one, though, the Quest Deck 2, uh, takes it a little bit further than they did last time. When they did their previous Quest Decks Kickstarter, they started out with just a single deck that had 45 cards in it, and it basically smashed through its stretch goals so much that they ended up actually setting out to produce one deck of cards, and they ended up making 10 from that Kickstarter alone. Much like the others, there is an add-on tier where you can get access to the previous rewards, so if any of those do take your fancy, then you can do that here as well. But in Questex 2.0, they're aiming to basically do the same. They're starting out with a single Questex box, and through Stretch Girls, they are unlocking more and more, and at the time of recording, they have gotten an additional six boxes that have been unlocked. So the categories that you get on this one uh, in the base set are Notice Board 2. This is... Uh, follow-on from Notice Board 1 in the original set. Uh, they describe it as what they call classic system agnostic quests, and these are designed that the GM can pull them out the deck and this makes up the notice board for the town. So this is things like immediate need to negotiate a contract, extra pay if you have expertise or advanced writing skills, and that's a quest that your party can take on. They also have the horror and mystery themed deck, which is quests with things like something stands outside my window at night, it is nine feet tall or more, its limbs are thinner than a cornstalk, I can only see it in reflections and it is invisible to the naked eye, it wants something from me and I can tell it plans to take it soon, please come and save me. And then also the Lost and Wanted deck, which is a bit different from one of their previous ones where previously they've all been text, this time they've got pictures of NPCs. So the Wanted ones, as it sounds, are wanted posters. Um, you get sort of like, there's this high mage who committed this crime, and obviously the Lost ones are uh, like, you know, a lost child type poster. In addition to those, the additional decks that have been unlocked are the Emissaries and Infiltrators. So this is looking for... Uh, people to take on the roles of spies or potentially uh, diplomats to royal courts and the like. A snowbound set, this is all for stuff that is in the northern reaches of any campaign setting. Fiendish missives, I will give you one guess as to what that includes, and yes, somebody did 
accidentally summon a demon inside their house. And the Unearthed Ruins set, which is uh, all about ancient history and how things have been dug up and looking for artifacts and has a very Indiana Jones kind of feel to it. In terms of pledges, there's a sort of split system between the physical decks and you can get them in PDF form if you want to print them out yourself or if you just want to run them in PDF form. Effectively, you are paying $14 or less per deck and that sort of multiplies up so by the time you get to your six decks level you're paying about $78 which actually makes it around the $11.50 mark per deck and then when you go for the digital ones it's a pack of three for multiples of $20. So three decks will run you $20, six decks will run you $60. And then you sort of combine the two. So if you want one uh, pack of physical, but you want three digital decks, well, that's $34 because that's the $14 pledge and the $20 pledge combined. They do have an ultimate tier, which will basically unlock everything which will be 10 decks of your choice in both physical and digital forms and that will run at 123 dollars and that is the absolute top end of the pledge tiers on top of that there is also shipping unfortunately for european backers and australia i'm sorry you're always left out but uh for those of us in the uh, european market they are only shipping from the us which means that if you're within the us then a single deck will run you 450 on top uh three decks will run you six dollars internationally you're looking at an additional 15 dollars per three decks minimum of 13 dollars per one deck so really bear that in mind when you go to pledge because like ostron says if you're in the uk eh, i don't know you might end up owing them your house or something by the time you actually come to pay um in addition, like I said, they are having an add-on system where you can pledge to get add-ons from their previous Kickstarters. This is the original notice board uh, for The Crown, Into the Stars, Grim Adventures, Coastal Threats, Far Flung Journeys, Neon Dystopia, Eldritch Omens, Uncharted Expanse, and Partners in Crime. The delivery date for this is expected in July of 23. They did mention in one of the updates, as you can imagine, the more stretch goals that get unlocked, the later the later decks will ship. The early ones will definitely be ready to come out on that date. You may be waiting a little bit longer if you have pledged for one of the later unlocks. Um, I really like these, personally, and I've actually pledged even before we sat down to record this evening because I think they're the sort of thing that can easily, very neatly, fill a tavern or something like that when you are completely caught off guard and unprepared. Uh, what do you guys think? Is this something that you would add to your DM kit? So, I don't know if you remember, because it's been a little while, but I reviewed the Quest X 1.0, so to speak. I thought it sounded on a- familiar. On a previous adventures pack, mm, and I searched I, for a list and I couldn't find it. I've looked. Must I must be looking at the wrong list. I have had only good things to say about them. I love these, and I can't wait to see what's in the new ones. It's also worth mentioning, I think, because I hopped over to the site. Even if you miss the Kickstarter, the decks when they retail are still only. US each. So you definitely get a discount on the Kickstarter, but if you can't pledge right now, it's not like you're going to pay an arm and a leg for them later on. They they do seem nice and they're useful for that, the purposes that uh, Lennon mentioned. I personally don't use the things like this, but 
if it is something you regularly use in your game, there there's something nice. The Kickstarter threw me off though, because they have their they have their stretch goals done up like the quest cards. Mm-hmm. So I went down there and I'm like, why are they giving the rewards in dollars instead of gold <laughs> on the thing? And then I read it. I was like, oh right, okay, these are the stretch. Right, never mind. Yeah, exactly. And who the hell would offer adventurers 25,000 to go into some unearthed ruins? I mean, actually, everybody, if yeah. you do the conversions do. of <laughs> right. how much the gold is actually worth in that society. Mm-hmm. like, Yep. Like, it's one of those where it's like a peasant will be lucky if it earns a gold piece through an entire year. How much did mm. you come back with? 3,000? Like, yeah. They're definitely in the 1% adventurers are. Mm-hmm. Links to Angel's Bacchanalia, Itza's Guide to Dragon Bonding, and Quest Dex 2.0 can be found in our show notes. And now that we've spent our coins and our bags of holding are full, let's leave the marketplace and check out some D&D news. Sire, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. Guys, guys, guess what just dropped? The next entry in the 1D&D playtest? No. Some info about keys from the Golden Vault? Or maybe Big B presents Glory of the Giants? Even better. Keith Baker's asked me to be in an Eberron movie? Nope. They finally revealed the artwork for Takesis. Nice. All right. And, uh, well, given that this show is now currently every other week, there must be, like, a of news and this is a very solid start so uh yeah what else is there um no no that that that's it seriously afraid so all right well uh we'll talk about that i guess um yeah so takesis the dragon queen they released two pieces of artwork one of her in a human form one of her in dragon question mark form uh, dragons form i don't know takesis also known as totally not tiamat yeah, for, even though, the wrong land. <laughs> I was going to say, even though, if you look at the artwork for Rise of Tiamat, Tiamat and Takesis look exactly the same. Yeah, mm. and in the tweet that Wizards put out, it basically said Takesis, also known as Tiamat. So th- they have <laughs> firmly melded that. But as far as the Dragons of Autumn, Twilight, etc. books are concerned, legally distinct uh, Tiamat. Um, yeah, so the Dragon Queen form you can kind of guess uh although if that is to scale that is terrifying um uh-huh. so i hope they've taken artistic liberty there because that form of tachesis must be uh however big your average watchtower is times 15 maybe i was gonna uh, say that's like that's like looking at earth next to jupiter yes yeah it really is which is something well, i do on a regular basis the I mean, remember, in the Krinish lore, Tachesis is a literal god Yeah, that just happens to take the form of a dragon every now and then, as opposed to in... <laughs> yeah. In um, Forgotten Realms slash Greyhawk lore, she's... Um, Tiamat is the, dra- the five-headed dragon who's just intensely powerful. Hmm. And uh, going to her more human form, um, 
definitely when I first saw this one complaint that has often stood out in my mind is I've got one of my players who constantly complains about uh, in MMOs how the armor would never work because they would impale themselves on their shoulder pauldrons the second that they tried to turn their head in battle she's almost taking an eye out here um, it is very <laughs> brass very ornate very spiky but it looks pretty good I think I mean, the self-injury quotient on that isn't too bad. No, but again, if you if you just jerk your head quickly, you know, somebody comes up and is like, oh, hey, there's news from the front, and you turn just a bit too sharp, you're going to leave a nasty cut on your cheek. Eh. I just want to know if the dragon tails that look like they're coming off of her headpiece are... What's the word I'm looking for? Badass? No, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, mean I don't, I don't, I I don't right need now. you to tell me. I don't need you to tell me that, um... I just want to know if the dragon tail looking things that are coming off of her headpiece are actually part of her that oh. she can move independently, possibly in battle, or if they are just like headgear. I, I think it's just accessories. A train type thing. Yeah. As in like dress train, not the transportation vehicle. Not choo choo train. Yeah, I knew what you meant. Um, I mean. On the upside, as far as functional armor goes, at least this is a full set of plate mail, and it's not yes. like, you know, plate mail um, crop top, mm -hmm. which is the other problem Oop with plate female is, armor. I believe, the technical yeah. term. I don't think it is, but I get your point. As somebody who wears it, I assure you it is. And that was my crash course in how to kill a podcast discussion in ten <laughs> words or less. I mean, we could go into the physics of how armor actually works when you're in battle, but we probably shouldn't do that right now. Yeah, we're also not that nerdy a podcast. We made Ostrom put his mouth away a while back, so... If you want a short rest on how armor actually works, I can make that happen. But I'll have my people talk to your people. We have <laughs> the same people. They will be very confused. That's mm. the secret. I mean, wait. <laughs> Does anybody else have anything else on this? Nope. All right, well, that's it. Ryu, take us on. Well, now that we're all caught up on the latest D&D news, let's take a short rest and... Huh, a new notification. Mm, I knew it. I knew there had to be more. There just there just had to be. So, one D&D playtest material, yes? No, no, no. I bet Fandelver. Book of Many Things, Planescape. Ah, uh, you're both wrong. D&D Beyond have released a video going over the prelude missions in Dragonlance. Eh, okay. I did, did something else, I suppose. Let's take a look at this then. So, Amy Dallin, aka Enthusy Amy from D&D Beyond, recently sat down with Eugenio Vargas to tell us all about the prelude missions that can be found in Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen. In total, there are three prelude missions which are entirely optional, and you may run one or more with your group in any combination, either as spotlight missions to establish individual characters, or you can run through them as a group or subgroups as benefits your playgroup. The three preludes are Eye in the Sky, described as ideal for sorcerers, warlocks and wizards, or indeed anyone looking to join the Mages of High Sorcery. Broken Silence is best for clerics, paladins, and other divine spellcasters, and teaches players that the gods have withdrawn from the world of Kryn. Finally, the last prelude is Scales of War, which reveals to the players the existence of the Draconians, and hints at what may be in store for the future of Kryn. Once the prelude section is complete, no matter how many your group did or didn't run, the characters advance to level 2 and the main adventure begins. 
Each character receives a letter from one Becklin Uthviharan, a Knight of the Crown, informing the characters that their longtime acquaintance Ispin Greenshield has passed away peacefully at his home in Vogler. The memorial is to be held on the eve of the Kingfisher Festival, and if you wish to attend, and hint you really should because that's how the adventure starts, accommodations have been made available at the Brass Crab Inn. And because the real Ispin was the friends we made along the way, you then get to choose from or roll on a d6 table to discover how your character was connected to Ispin, with entries such as Ispin was actually a close friend of your parents, or Ispin returned a stolen item to you and you remained friends. And even Ispin was originally your rival for the affections of another, but you formed a strong relationship with Ispin despite what happened to the relationship. Players are also encouraged to come up with their own reasons if they don't like any of the options presented. Ispin once saved your dog from a burning orphanage, you say. Ah, classic Ispin. He once wrestled a knife from an assassin sent to kill Lord de Balfrey, and you were the palace guard that the assailant knocked unconscious? Classic Ispin. Personally, I myself met Ispin when I was doing an experiment on multiplanar teleportation and accidentally created a recursive inversion loop. He jumped in to help right in the middle. We laughed. Then we laughed, then we laughed, then we laughed. Okay, 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 enough. That's cool. And uh, note to self, no more spontaneous anecdotes from Ostron. Ryu, Ryu, how did you meet Ispin? Uh, so it's kind of embarrassing, but um, before I got, you know, really good at being a rogue, he definitely caught me trying to pick his pockets one day. <laughs> Classic Ispin. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then he decided to teach me how to do it better. <laughs> Classic Ispin. That's strange because the first time I met him, I had my pockets picked by him and this rogue in training. It was weird. Eventually he really? did give it back to me though because he felt sorry for me. So yeah. Classic Ispin. So after watching that video and learning more about the preludes... I did read some of the comments, which I know is a mistake, but oh, I have a habit of Ryu. doing it anyway. Ryu. One of the comments, one of the comments said that it sounded like it was pretty much just Lost Minds of Fandelver all over again. And I admit I've not played Lost Minds of Fandelver, so I was wondering if you guys thought the same thing. I have played it, and it is not, in my opinion, that. How interesting, then. I wonder what similarities that person saw in it. The only thing that I can really think of is, like, as far as an adventure module goes, a uh, forced introduction, because that does happen in Fandelver. You are all sent, um, like, uh, the, the main quest initiator sends everybody a letter and is like, hey, I need help with this thing. And then all of you show up and you're like, oh, where's the quest guy? Dunno. Well, he's given us instructions, why don't we follow them? And then off you go. And that's that's the only real similarity that I could see there. But I mean, isn't it's not that, the same. I mean, isn't that a totally cliche way to get all your adventuring party together? Right. Because it sounds like something that would happen all the time to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were probably fixating on the letter thing. Right. Which is not, I mean, in my opinion, that's slightly more believable than the group of random people walk into a tavern because as as they pointed out in the video like how often are 
four to five people going to walk into a tavern and sit down like anywhere near each other unless all five happen to be playing massively extroverted bards (laughs) so yeah and let's face it I I know you know of the people sat around the table here at least one member of the party probably wouldn't willingly walk into a tavern so you've got that as well yeah that's fair yeah But other than that, the general concept, the premise of this, having these quests that you can choose to or not do, if that's what you prefer, and then starting the main adventure at level two, what do you guys think of that direction for an on-ramp and an introduction to not only D&D, but the world of Kryn? Well, at least they're not going to make it stupidly hard for level one characters. I guess it'll now be (laughs) stupidly hard for level two. Well, we well, don't know that because the prelude <laughs> adventures could be a nightmare. Yeah, and it yeah. doesn't say that's the only funeral you'll be attending. Mm. So, there's options. Actually, setting it at a funeral for brand new level 1 players is... that That's a pretty good move, Wizards. I like that. Yeah. Just roll them all in and have all the guests be, like, their identical twin siblings from out of town who have one letter difference in their name and... Otherwise, are completely identical to the level one NPCs that were, or PCs, I guess, that we're burying today. This was supposed to be a funeral for Ispin, but now we've got six people to bury, and mm-hmm. I you know. do like the I do like the different options where the preludes focus on different areas of lore. Mm-hmm. I am curious as to how different they really are. Uh, like, would it be better to section the players off in subgroups and maybe run one-on-one or, you know, yeah. two- to three-person versions of it rather than dragging the whole party through all of them? Uh, but that's something we're probably going to have to wait on. Yeah, I mean, the other option, of course, is uh, you could always play as a group and just give the non-Spotlight members... Uh, what are effectively NPC character roles, if you see what I mean. Yeah. But yeah, I like this concept, and I hope it's something that turns out as cool in paper as it is in my head. I'm just... I got burnt on mythic creatures, you see, so I'm trying not to get too mm-hmm. excited about this. But so far, I like what they're doing with Dragonlance, and it's one of the uh, one of the modules that I'm actually more excited about is coming out. And yeah, it's, it's good to feel excited about a D&D product again, like... like really excited for it so we shall see i shall watch all right does anybody have anything on that all right ryu take us on well now that we're all caught up with the latest D news let's take a short rest and oh that has to be the one DD playtest i mean they said almost monthly and it's definitely been over a month well i couldn't tell you because that wasn't my phone oh for christ of course of course i knew this would happen, I didn't even have to use Rostro. You okay over there? The D&D movie's been delayed until March 31st because of, quote, scheduling issues. And the word scheduling issues and D&D in the same sentence had a nerve. I'm fine. Oh, hey, look at this. Wizards has released a series of info cards, dragon safety tips, and dragon armies at a glance. And they almost look kind of like Magic the Gathering cards. Actually, some of these are pretty useful. So, oh, all right, all right, all right. Uh, for the listeners at home, the dragon safety tip cards read as follows: Tip number four hundred and seventy-nine. If you can't take the heat, stay out of the breath weapon. 
tip 23, about to find yourself in dragon vs. dragon combat? Grab a dragon lance to deal more damage. Tip 512, buy twice the amount of health potions as usual, and then double that. Tip 789, a dragon's wings give them an advantage. Try casting Earthbind to keep them grounded. Tip number three, you want to try and brainwash a dragon? Uh, survival of the fittest. Tip 996, if you're killed by a death dragon's cataclysmic breath, you'll turn undead. Spooky. And the uh, dragon armies at a glance stack says, Tip number nine, be careful what secrets you share on the battlefield. Dragon elves can understand languages. Tip 648, Bozak draconians look like their copper dragon relatives. Watch out, when they're downed, their bones explode. Tip number 42, a Sivak draconian can disguise itself as the last person it killed. Look twice at your fellow soldiers. And tip 204, if someone claims they saw a dragon, it may have only been a wyvern, which is still concerning. Lennon, are you also getting rules of acquisition flashbacks? A, a little, yeah, yeah. Um, the one thing that I liked about these, though, uh, which actually isn't anything to do with what you said, I'm just using it as a springboard, the fact that they are sort of card shaped and they have some really cool artwork and they've got like a little bit of flavor text. I mean, clearly this is a Wizards of the Coast product. I mean, look at it. it couldn't scream Magic the Gathering more if it tried. Um, these are perfect little tiny tidbits of information for printing out onto cards that you can hand to your players if you want to give them a little bit of insight into things that their characters would just know about living in the world of Kryn and, you know, the dragon armies. Uh, maybe not immediately on that one, but certainly on the uh, uh, the rest of the dragon safety tips, because if nothing else, they sound like rumours. I mean, uh, a rumour that if you're killed by a death dragon's cataclysmic breath, you'll turn undead. That's surely the sort of story that parents would tell their children, maybe their teenager. I don't have kids. I don't know. What age do you start traumatising them? <laughs> As soon as they start doing stuff that you tell them not to. Neat. Yeah, I've, yeah. I was going to say, <laughs> when, when you started going on, this seems more like rumors that NPCs would mm -hmm. be spouting at the tavern that I wouldn't go into. <laughs> um, you know, you've got the old veteran adventurer who's got burn scars everywhere spouting the thing about twice the health potions and double that. And then you've got the conspiracy theorist guy in the corner talking about the cataclysmic breath. Meanwhile, the dragon army's tips are what all the soldiers sitting around the stew-potted mess are sharing back and forth for the new recruits and stuff like that. So I think you guys are actually missing something really big that was pointed out in these. And that's, quote... If you are killed by a death dragon's cataclysmic breath, unquote, death dragon, guys, they're putting mm -hmm. new types of dragons in this resource. I mean, yes, it's called Dragon Lance, dragon, and it's Shadow of the Dragon Queen. I would imagine. Have you read so Dragon Lance? I have they still have not. They still have just the regular chromatics and metallics in there most of the time. Okay. <laughs> but Fizzbun gave us a whole treasury of dragons. Yeah, but not a death dragon. It's uh, a new one. Okay, fine, <laughs> fine. There's death dragons. No, I, I did, uh, I did spot that, and I figured I would leave it for you. Thanks. You're welcome. 
I also like speaking of things like that, how we do have a few little hints of, uh, of, of lore that could point to adventures in Kryn. So uh, the Sivak uh, Draconians can disguise themselves as the last person that they killed. That's pretty cool. And um, how the Bozaks can explode. Yeah. Um, I am so looking forward to this, this resource, guys. Okay. Does anybody I'm have... I'm sure that surprises you. I mean, color me shocked. It's a book that has <laughs> Dragon in the title twice alone. Yeah. All right. Does anybody have anything on anything? All right. Well, hopefully this time, Ryu, take us on. And now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news, anything? Bueller? Nothing? Okay. Okay. I think we're good this time, guys. Let's open up our quest logs and join Indigo Spectre as he runs us through the Tomb of Annihilation. So where are we going? It better not be any place dumb. Come in, pub. Greetings, brave adventurers. I am Indigo Spectre, and I'll be your dungeon master for the evening. Please join me at the table for the next few minutes as I introduce you to an adventure. Pushing through the hot, dense jungle, fending off bugs, and watching for an unexpected creature underfoot, the guide for the party calls a halt. Stealthing as best you can, you creep forward to the site of a fierce battle. On the ground, the carcass of a hapless goblin is mostly torn apart. Standing over it is a dinosaur, taller than the party by at least a couple of feet its jaws dripping with the blood of its prey. However, looking closer, you notice its skin is mottled and falling off, and some of its bones are even visible. The dinosaur is as dead as the goblin, but still very much hunting. Tomb of Annihilation is a full adventure published by Wizards of the Coast that is effectively a sequel to the infamous first edition adventure, Tomb of Horrors. While Tomb of Horrors was set in a non-specific hill that could be inserted anywhere, Tomb of Annihilation is one of the few Forgotten Realms adventures that doesn't take place on the Sword Coast, instead taking place in Chult. The adventure is recommended for players of level 1 through at least 12, and the players will need every single level if they are going to survive. The premise sets the tone for the rest of the adventure, and is terrifying in its own right. The land has been placed under a death curse, where resurrection magic doesn't work anymore, and anyone who has been resurrected is now slowly dying. Worse still, the souls of the dead are not going to the afterlife, but rather are being sucked into a vile contraption known as the Soulmonger, where they will eventually be consumed. The party must venture forth from Port Nianzaru to destroy the Soulmonger and release the souls of those who have been taken. However, the jungle is a deadly place filled with undead, dinosaurs, undead dinosaurs, and other evil creatures, not to mention the environment itself which is particularly dangerous to heavily armored characters. Once the players are able to traverse the dangers of the jungle, they must infiltrate the hideout where the Soulmonger resides. While the threats they face above ground are great, the threats below the surface are even greater. The players must be on constant guard, for the dungeon is a deadly maze of traps, tricks, puzzles, and deadly creatures. The dungeon is large, and time will be running short when the players make it to the entrance. If they are able to survive, the final encounter will be their greatest challenge yet, and it is likely that at least one player will die before completing the dungeon. Tomb of Annihilation is a very fun but challenging adventure for both the players and the DM. It is the first adventure published where overworld exploration is not only encouraged, but required. The book comes with a two-sided pull-out map. One side is the entirety of Chult, while the other is missing a large chunk of the interior. This is intended to be the side the players use. It's recommended the DM is able to keep track with a digital copy where the players are, unless the DM doesn't mind marking on the map. There are a number of locations on the overworld that the players can make their way towards, but can also stumble across both friendly and hostile encampments. The book is divided into five chapters, with Port Nianzaru being the first, and the Land of Chult being the second. The remaining chapters are other special locations, including the final dungeon. The book does an excellent job providing the DM with a wealth of well-organized information, 
giving the players a number of activities, side quests, lore dumps, and challenges. Additionally, the layout for each of the major areas is well-defined with sufficient information to help the DM work their way through the expansive campaign. The final dungeon itself is extensive as well and takes up a large section of the book. However, despite the excellent structure of the book, there are a number of challenges the DM will face. The biggest challenge for running Tomb of Annihilation is going to be the overworld exploration. If the party has a ranger with the jungle terrain favored or selects a specific NPC, they'll be able to basically ignore the navigation challenges. If the party has someone who can cast Goodberry or create food and water, or selects a certain NPC, the survival aspects become trivialized. The next challenge is persistence. This campaign is big. It took our party about 12 to 14 months of weekly gatherings to get through it, and the first half was just going through the overworld. If the players start getting bored with all the exploration, the DM will likely need to pivot and adjust to keep the flow of the game moving. It is completely possible for the players to get lost and wander in circles for weeks. While it does make for a funny story, it can become tedious very quickly. Next, the final dungeon itself is very long. There are many levels to it, and while the party should be about level 9 or 10 when they arrive, the players themselves could be exhausted just from slogging through the overworld. While there are some epic encounters in the overworld, many players may be focused on the dungeon itself, so having a palate cleanser one-off adventure between the overworld and the dungeon may be a good choice. Finally, as is stated early in the book, this adventure is intended to be very hard, there's even a meat grinder mode, which is designed to make it so your characters are much more likely to die, which may be a plus for the more hardcore players out there. For players that are more reluctant to put their characters at that much risk, the DM will need to be very careful. It is possible for the original party to make it all the way through, but the group we ran this with only had one character survive the entire campaign. Overall though, Tomb of Annihilation is an excellent adventure. It is definitely designed for more experienced adventurers, and even has some hooks for players coming out of the Lost Mines or out of Barovia which may be a way to help less experienced players get to the challenge of the dungeon without grinding through the jungle. Tomb of Annihilation is available on digital marketplaces and your friendly local gaming stores for approximately 40 US dollars. Now that our quest is complete, it's time to take a short rest and head into the archives of Candlekeep and learn all about the gnolls of Yanoku. I require access to all human knowledge. Oh, you've come to the right place, my boy. Kidneys, do you ever actually use people's names? People say it's easier to remember names if you associate the name with something they make you think of. I just skipped that first step. Now, tell me why your pet beholder is broken. I don't have a pet beholder. The one that brings you books and things and occasionally tries to kill you when you threaten the books? Respect for that, by the way. Book? Uh, why are you two just standing in the annex doorway? Book. Thanks? Oh, oh, come on, this is the fourth book on fertilizer you've brought me. I've been up to my elbows in sh- Excuse me. In case you've forgotten, everything is about me. Now, why won't this beholder bring me the book that I want? It probably doesn't know. Well, it acts like a librarian desperate to meet a quota with the rest of you. So what? It doesn't like me? I mean, that's a theory. Pretty good one, I'd say. Look, Lemmy, you have kidneys too. For the moment. We don't know exactly how Libby does what it does. I'm guessing the mental shields you have up constantly are probably the issue. You have mental shields. Okay, I take sensible precautions to guard my mind. You have an active defense system so overtuned it interferes with spells that aren't even targeted at you. Paranoid much? No, I'm not paranoid at all. <laughs> Says the woman who carries a mop around with her everywhere. 
I mean, if it was a broom, I'd understand. Sensible precautions. And someone better help me with my problem soon, or I'm going to start comparing whose kidneys come out easier. Fine. What is it you need help with? Book. Knowles? Why is it always the nightmare fuel with you? What? I'm evaluating possible minions. It's not like you all are willing to help with most of my projects. And even when you do, the whining and moaning I have to put up with really aren't worth it. Okay, well, the gnolls are worse. Well, uh, unless... Do you really want her to follow you there on your next vacation? Yeah, yeah, so gnolls are a terrible idea. People always point out that generalizing the behavior of a species based on the most frequently encountered groups, or even the majority, isn't fair. Drist proved that not all drow are loth-worshipping, murderously conniving slavers. Orc society is much more complex than them just being aggressive raiders that want to kill all the other races and conquer the world. And not all kobolds are mindless dragon sycophants. On the other hand, there are some species where trying to find the diamond in the rough is a very long, fruitless dig. Locating a sympathetic vegetarian mind flare is going to be a really difficult scavenger hunt. Benevolent liches who are in tune with the common man kind of goes against the whole premise. And a hag bake sale, let me just, that's always a trap, okay? Always. Unfortunately, gnolls kind of fit more into the latter category than they do the former. Gnolls first appeared in the first edition monster manual. There were a few paragraphs that described their general behavior in their own entry, and then the information on Yinogu elsewhere in the reference established the demon lord's ties to the race. It could be argued that gnolls are a staple species for D&D. There has been an entry for them in the first monster reference printed for every edition since first edition. That was usually the monster manual, but in second edition it was the monstrous compendium. From second edition onward, they were eventually available as a player race as well, although in most cases it was a dubious choice. Playing as a knoll imposed a lot of restrictions and negative penalties in attributes that made fitting them in with most groups and classes difficult. Although there were bits and pieces added later, the lore set down in the first edition has basically dictated the society and behavior of the gnolls straight through. The only deeper dive into their culture was an article written for Dragon Magazine 367 by one Keith Baker. D&D was in fourth edition at that point, and the gnoll entry in the monster manual left very little room for a sympathetic gnoll to exist. So Baker's article expanded and reintroduced some previous lore to make a reasonable knoll possible. Physically, there's very little not to like about the knolls, at least from a people-fighting-on-your-side perspective. The average knoll is north of seven feet tall, or just over two meters for you foreign types. They're built like hyenas because, well, they are. One of the primary ways gnolls are created, and possibly the origin of the species, is when Yinogu rampages across the material plane. Any of the corpses he leaves in his wake that are eaten by hyenas turn the hyenas into gnolls shortly afterward. The gnolls are built like them too. They don't look bulky or built out like giants or ogres, but their leanness is all toned ripcord muscle. They organize themselves into packs, and the strongest one gets to be in charge. Usually, they're matriarchal, so points in their favor, but every so often a really burly male can end up in the boss role. It's really difficult to tell the two genders apart unless there's a pregnant female. 
Yes, they can make more gnolls without the Demon Lord. Not that it helps in any way. The females are just as capable of running you down and ripping you apart as the males. Gnoll society is primitive and simple as compared to most other sapient species. They get restless if they stay in one place too long, so they never really establish cities or permanent settlements. The entire race has a bloodlust built into them that most think stem from their demonic heritage. Depending on the lore source you look at, the bloodlust may be quieted by any hunt and killing, but in most cases it's assumed the hunting and killing has to be of an intelligent creature or creatures. It is rumoured that certain magical rituals or mutations in birth can mute or completely eliminate this bloodlust in some gnolls, but it is an extremely rare phenomenon. However, even in those cases, two other aspects of Gnoll society usually keep them from ever making progress in being accepted. First, they are lazy. In general, they abhor physical labour and complex tasks, part of the reason why their clothes and weapons are usually either stolen or of a very primitive make. Their answer to that is to just enslave anyone that seems useful to them. Almost all Null Packs have humanoid slaves, though they never keep more than one or two slaves per ten Nulls for any great length of time. However, they may capture more slaves than that, which brings us to the other reason they aren't winning popularity contests. Nulls eat meat, and they really don't care where the meat comes from. In fact, related to the descriptions of their bloodlust, some believe they prefer meat from thinking beings. Any extra slaves, slaves that aren't following the rules, or ones that are too old, beaten down, or broken to work, get eaten, usually in front of the other slaves as a motivational tool. They don't always wait until they've taken slaves either. One of the hallmarks of Null Raids is where the pack is large, the settlement is small, or both is that there will be very few, if any, bodies. And that's because anyone not taken for slaving purposes becomes the afterfight protein bar for them or their pets. Note that if their main food sources dry up over a period of time, they will resort to drastic measures. Cannibalism is an acceptable practice if everyone's hungry, and giggles the new recruit isn't paying attention on watch. The other barrier to getting along with gnolls, as if more barriers were really required, is that they are like drow society. While it is not true that all drow worship Loth and follow her teachings, it's really safer to assume that any given group of drow does. It's almost the same with Nolz and Yenogu. Yenogu is one of the simpler demon lords. Whilst almost all of the demon lords want destruction of civilization and other beings as part of their grand plan, Yenogu's goals just stop there. He wants everything destroyed and all non-null beings eaten or enslaved. He literally doesn't spend time on anything else except getting his followers to summon him to the material plane, so that he can destroy things and enslave and eat people. The tenets of belief for this cult kind of fit on a post-it note. The main group that facilitates this are, of course, the Gnolls. A large number of Gnoll groups follow Yonogu, which means not only are you likely to encounter the regular kind of Gnolls when a warband shows up, they may also be Gnolls with demonic gifts from Yonogu. In addition to the demon-gifted gnolls, there may also be skeletal undead gnolls called flints. These are gnolls that were eaten by the rest of the pack and then raised through a ritual to the demon lord. Gnoll groups that are following Yonogu are capable of replicating his ability to create gnolls on a small scale. 
After they finish a raid, they can perform a ritual to taint the flesh of their victims. Then, any hyenas with them who feed on the flesh will turn into gnolls the same way it happens when Yinogu manifests. The nearly insatiable hunger and the focus on leadership by strength keep the gnolls from forming overly large warbands and packs, which everyone is mostly thankful for. There are some exceptions, unfortunately. Obviously, if Yinogu himself shows up anywhere, a very large number of gnolls will jump on the bandwagon, so to speak, and follow him to rain destruction on anything and everything. Yinogu does attract some other followers, however, and that's where he actually shows some of his intelligence. When beings better at organized thinking and planning devote themselves to him, he will sometimes grant them boons and gifts that allow them to present as strong enough to wrest control of several null packs and get them marginally organized. Usually, those fall apart too, for a few reasons. See, most of those emissaries of Yunogu tend to be warlocks, and as Lenin can tell you, enduring repeated physical abuse is not one of their strengths. It's actually kind of more the emotional abuse that's a problem for me. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you want me to change my approach? I'm just going to stop talking now. So, in short, the emissary of the Demon Lord is usually one bad fight away from becoming the main course of the after-battle feast. However, in most cases, the whole purpose of Yunogu appointing one of those people anyway is so they can get enough juice going to summon Yunogu himself. Now, Yunogu usually doesn't kill the poor sap when he manifests. That's not the problem. The problem, from the worshipper's point of view, is everyone who isn't a destruction-oriented cannibal. See, when there's a manifestation of Yunogu on the material plane, the response plan is very simple. It reads, Nuke it from orbit. Any negotiator sent to them will be eaten before saying hello. The casualty rate for direct combat is horrific, not to mention morale takes a nosedive when the soldiers see their captain killed and then have to watch as the enemy pauses to pass out pieces for snacking. Any settlement Yunogu gets to that isn't the size of Waterdeep is a lost cause. Knolls love ambushes. Can you imagine trying to clear out an urban area with windows, doors, alleyways, and staircases where gnolls can hide? I can, and it sounds like a wonderful way to kill any adventuring party I've ever met. And yes, the gnolls are smart enough to leave a group of orphans in the dead center of town and dare people to come in and try to rescue them. In short, anyone devoted enough to Yonogu to work with him on manifesting isn't going to run off and hide while the demon hyena and his followers go rampaging. That means when the massively destructive response is used to wipe out the demon lord, the followers usually go with him. Using gnolls in a campaign is fairly straightforward, much like them. They are another group of creatures where you can have them raid a settlement, caravan, or whatever, and only the most staunch anti-execution sapient rights people are going to have a problem with you eliminating them with extreme prejudice. They are not meant to be unusual manifestations worth studying, they hardly ever know anything that makes interrogating them worth the effort, and holding them as hostage is kind of beyond pointless, literally no one will want them. They aren't even really useful as the harbingers of some complex campaign-spanning plot in their basic form. If there are gnolls, their goal will be destruction. If there are gnolls trying to perform a ritual, the ritual will either be to make more gnolls or to summon Yinogu. You could try to make a campaign based on that, but it will be very repetitive in most cases. 
As always, you can make them part of a larger plot by playing them against type and have a group following a different god or demon lord, but that requires a certain amount of heavy lifting on the DM's part. And like the gnolls themselves, I'm far too lazy to bother with that kind of thing. Kind of like the whole get a slave to do it for me idea, though. Oh, really? Uh, raise a hand if you're surprised. Here, eyeballs, you can have this back. Wholesale destruction of everything isn't usually my M.O. And everyone knows hyenas are not reliable minions for world domination. There was a whole movie about it. I'm, I'm actually pretty sure that wasn't the point of the movie. Um, also, why are you being nice to Libby? I told you already, every now and then it tries to kill all of you. Game recognizes game. That's not what Libby's doing. It's just a few misunderstandings. You keep telling yourself that, Kidneys. Now, unless you're going to take a nap for me, I'm going to let you all bail out that water trough. You're, um... You're sure about Libby, right? You're seriously going to take her word about anything? Come on, let's get to the scrying pool. Book. <laughs> what news from the north? Riders of Rohan! Message for you, sir. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, so how do you think Wizards is going to make the encounters more deadly to justify the extra feats? Are they going to introduce new complexity and harder tactical challenges, or are they just going to use CR5 creatures instead of CR1 third? Relatedly, do you think the Lunar Sorcerer is a nice boost to the Sorcerer's power and is in line with what the adventure demands, or is it going way too far and making every other spellcasting class obsolete? And finally, when's the last time that you were held against your will? What purpose did it serve in the story? Are you okay? Kicking things off, Dunderhill wrote in on Discord and said, The increased deadliness, the way they are handling the bonus feats, and especially the Lunar Sorcerer, are examples of why I don't like Wizards of the Coast approach to Dragonlance. The problem with the bonus feats is that they don't really increase survivability, and some of the previously published adventures have been famously deadly during the first couple of levels. I see the Lunar Sorcerer as a design failure because it creates an option that's obviously far superior to the other options for sorcerers. I hope that the other people enjoy the 5th edition version of Dragonlance, but as a longtime fan, I'll be happier running it using older materials and house rules. One side note, the reason for Beedle and Grimm's Steel Edition instead of Gold is very likely because the coinage changed from Gold to Steel in the setting after the Cataclysm up through the War of the Lance. It was one of the little details from the original setting. Gold wasn't seen as having as much value after an apocalypse. Azerol on Discord wrote in to say, I honestly think Wizards of the Coast will choose one of two options for making the encounters more deadly. First, they won't. They don't seem too worried about game balance anyway, so why start now? Not to mention it would probably take away from all their efforts at increased monetization, but I digress. They will probably take the path of least resistance here and just use mightier monsters in their modules just to make sure they still aren't survivable for low-level characters. My comments for the Lunar Sorcerer are mostly thematic. Why do you get to select your Lunar Phase? Doesn't the actual moon or moons get an opinion? What is thematically a neat idea gets squashed by the idea that you can pick and choose instead of your powers actually being controlled by the moon. Silly. The last time I was held against my will was actually during the current Dragonlance campaign I am playing. Great tie-in, huh? 
Mykender Bard, Melvarin the Magnificent, had been arrested on obviously trumped-up charges with very little evidence at all against him. He was imprisoned in one of the mighty Valenwood trees in Solace by the Seekers for allegedly spreading the word of the Old Gods. Perhaps there may have been a recitation of the Canticle of the Dragon at the end of the last home, but that surely doesn't prove anything. Anyhow, needless to say, being a brave, noble, and completely innocent Kender, Melvarin did not remain in custody for long. Melvarin is fine. I am fine. You may want to check in with my DM to see how he is doing. Lastly, when it comes to the Beetle and Grim Steel edition, Dunderhill hit the nail exactly on the head. Gath Melvarin Discord says, I wonder if for Dragonlance they're doing a more epic approach. So, yes, there's going to be a whole lot more deadly encounters and challenging situations the characters will find themselves in, but based on what was discussed in the last couple of episodes, it sounds like they may be buffing the PCs so they can meet these much more difficult challenges. So, I want to go back to what Azeril was saying. Um, I don't believe there is such a thing as an innocent Kender. There is merely a Kender that has not been caught <laughs> yet. That is it. There is, it's, it's an oxymoron. Innocent Kender. It's just, yeah, no. Don't believe it for a second. I mean, that Kender was caught. Right, that's what I mean. There is no such thing as an innocent Kender. And mm. this one has been caught. And also, a Kender but Like, do you... It is much easier to just say to your DM, Hey dude, I don't want to be friends anymore. Like, it is, it is <laughs> way simpler to say that than to sit in a campaign playing a Kender bard. Trust me, it, it'll just make everybody's life so much easier. I want to touch on a couple of things that Dunderhill said. Thank you for reminding me about the steel and gold thing. I, now that you mention it, I did. I do remember that being the way it was in Dragonlance. Yeah, and I can confirm that behind the scenes, as soon as you wrote that feedback, Ryu was like, "Of course, that's exactly what it is. I knew this as well." And she's just kicking yep. herself that she didn't I, get I it was. at the time. So, yeah. It also makes sense given the people involved with Beetle and Grooms that they would pay attention to that particular detail. Yes. Yeah. Also, what you say about the Lunar Sorcerer, yeah, it might be the obviously far superior option, but it's most certainly not going to be more fun to play than a Wild Magic Sorcerer. <laughs> Fight me. No, don't really. But <laughs> No, because you'll probably explode, for one. Uh. <laughs> I, I will roll that seven. <laughs> mm-hmm. And just remember, you cannot spell superior without soup. And in general <laughs> feedback, Rebel on Discord says, good show. Thanks, Rebel. So over on Twitter, we post small sound bites of our shows, you know, for the metrics. Last episode's soundbite was me asking the question, I can't see why anyone would choose to play a wizard, to which Ken from Chicago responded, hold on, let me answer Ostron's question. This is why. Followed by a picture of the three main characters from Harry Potter, Gandalf the White, the Wizard's Tower from the Wizard of Oz, and a fourth gentleman I'm not familiar with. That might be Ken from Chicago. <laughs> if if so, he's rocking an awesome beard. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was thinking that it might be a version of Saruman that I'm not familiar with, mm. but I don't recognize him either. I would have said it Gandalf, if anything. Um... But Gandalf didn't have uh, what looks like it could possibly be a palantir on top of a black staff. Yes, yeah, so. that, that was the bit that was throwing me off. Um, nor did he have that kind of Ming the Merciless headpiece underneath a hood. But, eh. You know, we're all going to be uh, 
forehead slapping when... Yeah, when Dunderhill writes in and says, uh, that is clearly the Grand Magus of so-and-so, and and we'll be like, yes, of course it is, of course it is. I watched that episode (laughs) of Battlestar Galactica, I know who that is. (laughs) Anyway, and yeah, I mean, there are always lore reasons to do anything that have nothing to do with game mechanics. No, I say that there is no lore reason to play a Kenda. Just isn't. Well, sure there is, if you want to just completely derail the story. Hmm. A compelling argument, sir. (laughs) That would be all of my players? Yeah. I mentioned, or I wrote this into the short rest from last episode, which there are people who will intentionally, you know, start a campaign set the notice board in town on fire, punch out everyone else in the bar so no one can ask for help, and, you know, flip off the first woman that comes in saying she's missing her child just expressly for the purpose of proving that the DM is not the boss of them. I don't think there are a lot of people who enjoy playing with those particular players, but they definitely exist. I mean, my players don't do that, but... (laughs) But they do like to try to attempt the uh, road less traveled by, so to speak. I've got it. That fourth picture is a wizard of the coast. Ah, it makes so much sense. And that brings us to this week's community questions. Are there any of the Kickstarters catching your eye? Do you want more food mechanics or just a raucous party? How about adventuring with dragons and driving your DM completely mental? Or do you just need some quests? And what do you think of the prelude adventures and the invite to the funeral? Is this a clever, inclusive way to get the characters on board with the adventure and lore? Or do you think this is just a copy of Fendelver's tired old method? And you've got a gnoll, a goblin, and a kobold. Who's your money on for the fight? What if they're in groups? How about full armies? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 229th entry into our chronicle. We'll be back with our 230th entry on November 30th. But before we go, we want to know. For you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on this show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on Twitter at heroesrisednd. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you, so take a minute and tell us your thoughts. Make sure you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Audible, and anywhere else good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favorite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy, and be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout to save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you live recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super-secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally, you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming stores, you help our audience grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks so much for all your likes, shares, and retweets. 
We want to take a moment to thank our social media made Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal, Bloodlick, Indigo Spectre, and Gath Memvar, and our audio alchemists Mikey, Bramwin, and Demosthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders, Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, The Sabi, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, Strife, Cordron, Daft Kronk, The Record Spinning Economy, The Shadow, known only as Azeral, and That One Guy. Vincept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vincept.bandcamp.com and Low of Lowe's Layer, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Layer and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Layer. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. keep saying into instead of at the i mean i guess it would work either way incompetence i don't know (laughs) ouch (laughs) i mean i can leave no please don't and after that we're going to check out some dd news as we discuss new art okay maybe it is incompetence maybe i should just quit (laughs) (laughs) again no i think (laughs) ostrom will agree with me here that actually you are like one of the better bars of the show Mm -hmm. (laughs) mm-hmm Yeah, this is a great show so far. Keep it rolling. Guys, guys, guess what just dropped? Uh, the next entry in the D, 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 D. I mean, we could go into the, uh, the physics of howing, er, of howing? Yes. We could. Um, I apparently, I apparently, uh, started speaking street slang from Mistborn. Nope. Release on Fendelver? Book of Many uh, Things. I think Plains you read skate. half of Ryu's line there, but try again. Yeah, you did. Uh, not on my screen. Well, you said nope. Right, I was arguing with you. Oh, I see. I was I was being creatively ad libbing. Oh, right, you're just so well controlled. I'm not used to it. Uh, do it again. <laughs> Amy Dallin, aka Enthusi Amy from D and D. Why do I struggle with the word D&D? It's literally what this podcast is about. You used okay. up all your pronunciation energy getting through enthusiasm Apparently. <laughs> yeah. And so I, do, I oops, oh, okay. You go ahead. Uh, actually, you go ahead. Actually, you go ahead. Like it. <laughs> what was that? Right. <laughs> Jeez. That was... <laughs> I like it. Ostrom flips the entire table. Screw you and your segments. I am done here. Um, All right, you can stop it there if you haven't already. While it is true that not all drow worship Loth and follow her teachings, it's really safer to assume that any given droop of grout... (laughs) In short, anyone devoted to Yanogu to work with him on manifesting isn't going to run off and hide while the demon he... And everyone knows hyenas are not reliable minions for world denomination. Nope. (laughs) So what I love here is that Gath knows the restrictions on how we have to reread things if we mess up halfway through. And yet he gave you a four line sentence to read. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he did it on purpose and he's laughing about it.
in the background. And so this brings us to the end of the 229th entry into our chronicle. We'll be back with our 30th entry with another <laughs> 200 on November 30th. Beep beep. Also to Vince Fept for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show. Be sure to check him out at vincefept.bandcamped.com. Yeah, they were here. <laughs> They've moved on. Beep beep. Also to Vince Fept for all the amazing... That's not even the words. Nope. How long have we done this? How long has this never changed? <sighs> it's been about, you know, 229 episodes now. Roughly, yeah. A celebration of depravity 